Our world today seems wild and out of control. It seems almost impossible for ordinary people to make wise decisions that can keep them safe and healthy. Welcome to Words from the Wildwood. I am your host, Richard Stidham, and I hope to give you today a better understanding of what is really happening in the world around you and how you can hear God's voice over the noise of the world around us. Let's go today to our new segment. All right, everybody, welcome back to our podcast. We are wrapping up today and next week the end of the book of the Revelation. We are going to bring to a close everything that we have been talking about over the last few months, and we're going to put it all to bed. I know it's been a roller coaster ride, and I commend you for having taken this trip with us. Last week, we brought everything to a close. Everything was judged, everything was locked away, everything was done. Basically, the entire earth was wiped out in the final conflict with Satan. But what will become of us after that? We know that the saints are gathered around the throne in heaven. Is that where we're going to be forever? Is that going to be our new home? What does the Bible actually say? You see, fallen creation has been destroyed, and it's time for a new creation. Think about that. A new creation, a fresh start, starting over with none of the past to tie you down. Now consider this. Everyone wonders what heaven will be like, right? Uh, We have all these little uh, snippy things that we say. Oh, the streets of gold. Hey, the glassy sea. Sitting on clouds, playing harps. uh, Forever with little wings flying around. We have these images of what we think heaven will look like. But what is it really going to be? What does the Bible actually promise us for the time after the tribulation, after the judgment, after all of this is done and the the world has been wiped out, what are we going to see? Well, chapter 21, where we are tonight, is going to try to describe what John saw when he saw the new heaven and the new earth. Something completely different, something that wasn't there before. And he tries to describe it in the best way that he could. Of course, being a man of the first century, he was probably overwhelmed with the things that he saw. But God gave him the words to describe it for us. And why? Because this is the mid-90s in the first century. The church is under persecution. People are dying both of persecution and of old age, people who had hoped to see Jesus come back in their lifetime were beginning to realize that he might not make it back before they had to walk the veil. So he wants to give them hope. He wants to give hope to the future generations. It's true that people have always sort of lambasted the church. They said, hey, you guys are fools. You're waiting for a God who's never coming back because he wasn't really a God. And and they're making us think that there's no hope for the future, that we're never going to see the fulfillment of Jesus's promise that if he goes away, he is going to come back and take us to be where he is. Well, this new creation that John's going to talk about tonight in chapter 21, beginning at verse 1, this new creation has three stellar characteristics, three outstanding characteristics that are meant to give us hope, meant to give us a future, meant to give us something to look forward to. The first characteristic of this new heaven and new earth is this. Our new home in heaven has no sorrow. We see so much happening in the world today. So many people in pain, so many people in sorrow, um, all of these school shootings, mall shootings, uh, terrible things happening, robberies, carjackings, And we think, how how could there be a world with no sorrow, with no pain? Well, we're going to see it right here tonight, 
Revelation 21, 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea no longer existed. Can you imagine a world without a sea? The first heaven was gone, the sea was dead, it was all gone. And he says in verse 2, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride, adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, look. God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Think about this. When Adam and Eve were created, they were placed in a perfect garden. They were placed in a a garden where they could walk with God. They could commune with God. They could share their lives with God. That's what we were intended to do. We were intended to walk with the God who created us, with the God who made us. It was only sin that made us ashamed. It was only sin that made us feel outcast. And then God had to remove us from the garden so that we would not eat of the tree of life and live forever in separation from him. It it, it wounded the heart of God to do what he had to do, but he had to make sure that man would not live forever in separation from him. But now in this new heaven, this new earth, God will literally be with us again as he was in the garden. And we will know that closeness, that intimacy with the God who made us. Look at verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will no longer exist. Grief, crying, and pain will exist no longer because the previous things have already passed away. Now, we all think that there's going to be no sadness in heaven. Well, there's going to be no sorrow But when we get there, there may be some initial sorrow. It says he will wipe away our tears. Why? Because I think there will be people in heaven that we wish were there, but that didn't come, that didn't have faith in Jesus. They didn't trust. And there may be some initial sorrow when we realize that the people that we loved here on the earth did not make it into heaven because they would not trust the only begotten Son of God. And so that might be the only grief we experienced that first moment, but it says He will wipe away our tears. He will comfort us. He will give us the consolation of the one who made us, who knows us. Verse 5 says this, Then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. He also said, Write, because these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, It is done. Now the high priest would say, It is done when he slaughtered the last lamb at the Passover. Jesus says, It is done. His last words on the cross as he gave up his spirit to be the perfect atonement for all of the sins of man. He goes on and says, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give water as a gift to the thirsty from the springs of life. The victor will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. He, that's also for, for women. They'll be his daughters. But the cowards, unbelievers, vile murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death, that permanent separation from God for all time. Wow, all of these verses right here bring back so many scriptures to memory. We can think about Isaiah 25, 8. 
It says, he will swallow up death forever, and Yahweh God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people will be taken away from all the earth, for Yahweh has spoken. This speaks of that day when total forgiveness, total restoration, it's all gone. Death is swallowed up and no more a fear, no more an enemy of man. 1 Corinthians 15, 54, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. When Jesus rose from the grave, man was given victory over death. Even though we physically die, we live unto Christ for all eternity because he is our life. He is the one who delivers us through the veil into his presence to be with him forever. Now consider this. It says that Jesus will be a spring of life. In the Garden of Eden, there was a tree, and that tree was the tree of life. They had to eat from the tree in order to continue to live. The tree was a thing outside of them. So when they were cast out of the garden, they didn't have access to the fruit on that tree. So as a result, they began to die physically. But now this spring of water that he's talking about, this living water, this is going to be an internal thing. It's going to be inside of us. Consider John 4, 10 through 14. A very familiar story. You guys all know this story, but this is our future right here. Jesus answered her, talking about the Samaritan woman by the well. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is speaking to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it as did his sons and his livestock? Now Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water, meaning the well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. That water that I give him will become in him, inside of us, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. You see, in the Garden of Eden, the tree was external. But in this new heaven, this new earth, that life is internal, inside of us. Even as today we are sealed by the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit lives in us to teach us, to guide us, to move us. In this new heaven, this new earth, that life will be internal for all time. It will be inside of us. Uh, an amazing picture going from Genesis right to Revelation, from outside life to inside life. Fantastic picture. Wonderful. The second thing I want you to see here about our new home is that our new home is safe and secure. That sounds almost laughable when you turn on the news every day and you see so much violence, so much death and destruction, people attacked in their own cars, in their own homes, shot in their own homes, uh, in stores, in restaurants, just no safe place anywhere on the earth. But now in this new heaven, this new earth, we will be safe and secure. Revelation 21, 9. Listen to what it says, church. Then one of the seven angels who had held the seven bowls filled with the last seven plagues came and spoke with me. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Then he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, arrayed with God's glory. Her radiance was like a very precious stone, like a jasper stone, bright as crystal. 
The city had a massive high wall with 12 gates. 12 angels were at the gates. The names of the 12 tribes of Israel's sons were inscribed on those gates. There were three gates on the east, three gates to the north, three gates on the south, and three gates to the west. The city wall had 12 foundations, and the 12 names of the Lamb's 12 apostles were on the foundations. There we are. Amazing. The one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city, its gates and its walls. The city is laid out in a square. Its length and width are the same. He measured the city with the rod of 12,000 stadia. Its length, width, and height are equal. It's a cube. Then he measured its walls, 144 cubits, according to human measurement, which the angel used. Now, people have spent books upon books, uh, seminar upon seminar, hour upon hour, trying to figure out all the intricacies of these numbers, these measurements, and, and, and everything that they might hold in store. Let me tell you something, church. It doesn't matter. It's just cannon fodder. Here's what it comes down to. I found this quote in one of my commentaries. I said, oh my goodness, he sums it up perfectly. The square form of this city probably denotes its stability. It's a very stable pattern, a, square, a cube. While its vast dimensions, being 1,500 miles on each side, are emblematical of magnificence and its capacity of containing all the multitudes of inhabitants which should ever enter it, however immense or innumerable. Basically, everything that was just described says that the foundation of this new Jerusalem are the apostles' teachings because they are the ones who carried the gospel to the world. It is also founded on the promise that God made to the sons of Israel. And he said, you know, your 12 names will live on and they're, they're there for the gates. All this is, is, is showing us again it goes from the Old Testament right to the New Testament. God was the same yesterday, today, forever, and far into the future. It just shows us that we can depend upon everything that God has written in his word, that we can trust it because it is stable, it is true, and it continues. Revelation 21.18 continues. The building material of its wall was jasper. The jasper stone shows up in the Old Testament quite a bit, especially in the book of Ezekiel. And the city was pure gold like clear glass. Now consider this, church. Consider this. Gold is opaque. It is solid. It's shiny. But it, you don't see through it. This is pure gold like clear glass. There will be nothing in this city to obscure the light of God's goodness. It'll shine like, like liquid gold, like a gold that just allows the glory of God to shine right through. 19 says the foundations of the city walls were adorned with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper. Of course, we've seen that. The second, sapphire. The third, chalcedon. The fourth, emerald. The fifth, sardonyx. The sixth was carnelin. The seventh, chrysolite. The eighth, beryl. The ninth, topaz. The tenth, chrysophis. And the eleventh, jaceth. And the twelfth was amethyst. Hmm, where have I seen these stones before? I can show you where some of the stones are found. They're found in Exodus chapter 28, verses 17 through 21. Now, if you know Exodus 28, if you know the Old Testament, you go, wait a minute. All of these stones sound very familiar, arranged as they are. 
They were in the breastplate of the high priest. It says in verse 17, you shall set in it, the, the, the breastplate that goes on the high priest, four rows of stones, a row of sardis, topaz, carbuncle, first on the on the first row, and the second row was emerald, sapphire, and diamond. On the third row, jaseth, an agate, and an amethyst. And on the fourth row, a beryl, an onyx, and a jasper. They were set to be there in gold filigree. There they shall be twelve stones with their names according to the names of the sons of Israel. They shall be like signets, signifying those names, those lives, those people, each engraved with its name for the twelve tribes of Israel. So you see, twelve tribes, twelve stones in the breastplate of the high priest, and now the very kingdom of God set on these very same stones. Now, over the centuries, over over time, the names of these individual stones have changed. I tried to do a little track down and a little mineralogy, but uh, unfortunately, my mineralogy is pretty weak. But I did see in in a number of writings that, that these are comparable stones, uh, so named throughout the centuries, going all the way from 3,500 years ago in Exodus all the way up to the first century. So we, we have those things going on. It just goes to show you God is reaffirming that covenant, reaffirming those images that were so powerful, so strong. And the last thing I want you to see is this, Revelation 21, 21. Our new home is going to be in the light. In the light. You'll understand what I mean in just a minute. Revelation 20 21, the 12 gates are 12 pearls. Each individual gate was made of a single pearl. That's a big pearl, people. The broad street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. Hmm. Glassy sea. We've seen that before. I do not see. I do not see a sanctuary in it because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its sanctuary. Remember in earlier parts of the book of Revelation, they looked into it and they saw a, 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 an Ark of the Covenant. They saw a sanctuary there that was representing the heavenly sanctuary. That sanctuary no longer needs to be. Why? Because the Ark of the Covenant represented the place where God would meet his people. But now we are in living in God's presence being indwelt by the Spirit, we are there. There's no more need for it. The Bible even says in the, in the end days, nobody will rebuild the Ark of the Covenant. They won't even go looking for it because you don't need the Ark to meet God. God has met us personally, face to face. And it says the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it because God's glory illuminates it and its lamp is the Lamb. Consider this, my friends. There is a very large uh, religious organization that believes that the earth will, will not be destroyed, but will be renovated to be a perfect place for everyone to dwell, a heavenly paradise uh, on earth. But here's the problem. In this planetary system described here, there's no sun, no moon, no mention of water, so it can't be a planet. So what is it? It is something that we've never seen or thought of before. It is a gift from God, a dwelling place that is eternal, that does not decay, that does not fall apart, where there is no death, no no destruction, no rust eats away. It's going to be something we can't even imagine. John did his best to describe this place. Liquid glass, I mean, and crystals everywhere and, and beautiful stones that set to show the value and, and, the, and the beauty of the city 
And it says that now there's no sun and no moon because we won't need it because God will be our light. We will literally be living in the light of God's presence. It says in verse 24, the nations will walk in its light and the kings of the earth, this new earth, whatever it's going to be, will bring their glory into it. Each day its gates will never close because it will never be night there. There will be no night. So we can't be orbiting a sun because there's no night. So this is a very different kind of existence. I know I'm getting very strange right now, but think about this. It's not a planet. It's not an earth like we know an earth. It is something completely different. Each day its gates will never close because it will never be night there. They will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. Nothing profane will ever enter it. No one who does what is vile or false, but only those written in the Lamb's book of life. We've said this before. It is all about what Jesus did for us when he wrote our names in the Lamb's book of life with his own blood. He wrote us in there and gave us a permanent place, a, a, a citizenship in this planetary system or whatever this thing is that we're going to be entering into. Now the tabernacle we saw earlier is gone because the separation between man and God is gone. There's no more an unapproachable Mount Sinai because God will literally be around us. I'm going to close out today with just a few words from Isaiah 60. Isaiah 60 uh, kind of gives us this image again. And it's Isaiah 60, 11 and 12. Isaiah 60, 11 and 12. Your gates shall be open continually day and night. They shall not be shut. That people may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. For the nations and the kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. Those nations shall be utterly laid waste. It was written in the time of Isaiah, and, and Isaiah was living in, in a very uh, dangerous time for the people of Israel, and he was giving them hope, saying, the day will come when the gates of Jerusalem will be open forever, and people will enter only to, only to bestow their wealth on you, to praise God, to worship Him in, in truth. And so basically... We look at that to remind ourselves that everything written right there at the end of Revelation 21 is a direct reference to what was said in Isaiah 60. Just reminding again the people who've read the Word of God that there is continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. If you don't read the Old Testament, you miss so much of what's happening in the New Testament. All right, friends, let's close it out for right now. We are going to be in chapter 22 next week. We're going to be finishing the book of Revelation. You can put the little gold star on the wall say, I did it. I got all the way through the book of Revelation. Something that many pastors have never done. Something that many church leaders have never done. Many, many biblical scholars have never been all the way through the book. And I hope you appreciate the way we've done it. It's all about being practical. It's all about being what informs how we live, how we, how we conduct our lives. And I hope that as we finish this up and begin our return to the Old Testament, that you will be as excited as I am. We have some interesting things laying ahead in the weeks and the months to come. Some new things for you, perhaps. Things you hadn't thought we were going to be able to do on this podcast. But we'll talk more about it later. Till then, may God bless you and keep you. And if you hear a trumpet, look up, because your salvation has come near. Thank you for joining us today on Words from the Wildwood. 
We are a listener-supported program presented without commercial interruption. If you have enjoyed this program and want to support our outreach, please send any gifts to Richard Stidham, P.O. Box 1321, Baytown, Texas, 77521. Thank you for listening today. God bless, and we will see you again in the Wildwood. Thank you.